This stool is too tall. I'm going to grab this chair. Or am I going to? I'm going to grab this. There we go. There we go. There we go. Got to be smarter than the chair. And last week, nothing was recorded, so let's... Oh, it's, rec- it's recording. Okay. Okay. All right. Got my desk. Okay. All right. All right. Hey. It's a bad thing. Okay. Um, so the order of topics would be Luke, what we've talked about this morning, and then we're going to go into, if we're, whenever we're done with that, with um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and diving further into that. So any, any questions from Luke or any of the stuff we've been covering thus far? Yes. Um, no, in the same region probably means, um, I wouldn't, I'd guess not more than a couple miles. Um, yeah, it is. It's conceivable. Well, no, they made haste. I don't think you make haste with sheep. Um, not at night. Sheep at night. I don't think you make haste at night with sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An implied sacrifice that these shepherds likely um, would have left their sheep. I mean, it's conceivable they found somebody else, woke them up, said, hey, we'll pay you, wash your... I mean, I doubt it, but we, we don't know. But yeah, it's implied. They just, they make haste, they leave their sheep. That's sure what it looks, that's sure what it looks like is going on there. Absolutely. No, good observation. Yes, Alan. Mm-hmm. Indeed. The word, the, word, the word that's there is, is say, and I actually looked up the Greek yeah. word and, and, and ran a concordance search. Sure. And, and every place it appears in the scripture is say. It has not, never, never has implications. Christmas is, you guys are just about destroying Christmas. Yeah, it's reasonable to reveal the Sure. No, no, and that's, and that's why. No, 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 fair enough. And the, the, the title was just meant to grab the familiar slogan. I, I, I don't think I taught they were singing. So, no, fair enough. The title, the top, grabbed the colloquial expression. Um, it's just less zingy to make Hark the Herald Angels say. But that probably would be more accurate. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, Wanda. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, wow. I do not. Um, I know it does. I know it's German. I'm pretty sure it is German, the origin of the Christmas tree. Um, I don't know. And people have... It, it, I don't know much of the origin of the Christmas tree. Um I have one. Okay. It's all right, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but and let, and let me talk through this notion of, of Saturnalia, because um, it messes with people. It, there's a lot of tradition. It's, it's entirely possible, and people have argued the Christmas tree is a pagan tradition. It may well be. There, there is, I'll, I'll tell you, I was translating through James when I was going through James. I mean, you get to James 3, where it talks about the tongue sets on fire the course of this life. The phrase for course of this life in Greek is the wheel of life. 
And that really threw me for a loop when I read that because that's a pagan concept of life. So I'm trans, this is probably four or five years ago, I'm translating through James, and I get to the tongue sets on fire the wheel of life. And I'm thinking, what on earth is James doing? Is he giving credence to this pagan notion of life as a wheel? And it's this, this whole sort of pagan Greek you know, deal. And um, the conclusion I came to, and, and a lot of commentators came to, I think is the right one, is that there are things that can enter the culture through the cult, through, I mean, the whole word culture comes from cult, right? It's the religion. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the um, zeitgeist of the age. So the things enter the culture, usually religiously, but over time they can be so sanitized they lose their religious significance. For instance, I don't think anyone recognizes they're giving homage to Odin when they say Wednesday. But the origin of Wednesday is Odwin's Day, Thor's Day, Frigga's Day, Saturn's Day. They entered the culture religiously. They've been absolutely sanitized of any religious meaning for all but the most, you know, um, strange of people. Um, so, right. And, 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 I think that's, and I think that's honestly where some of the tension with Halloween even comes in. Because some places, and, and, and there can be something where in different areas it's got different connotations. In other words, if, if you grew up and your association with Halloween is Wiccan, witchcraft, devil worship, and evil, then don't eat the meat. If you grew up where Halloween's when kids put on costumes of movies and walk around with their parents to get candy, I think that can be done in faith. Uh, Halloween's probably one of those things that's on its way. If it isn't fully sanitized, it's certainly being sanitized out. And so there's room for Christian debate. Christmas, certainly at this point, isn't a Saturnalian festival. And just because you can root its origins in a pagan tradition doesn't guilt by association now. Um... And so in the same way that I think that the, the days of the week make it through, um, I think Christmas, whatever its origin is, can be something that is honored to God. And at the same time, though, there's nothing in Scripture that mandates it. You know, I remember hearing someone say, look, I don't celebrate any Mass, whether it's Christ's Mass or Mary's Mass or anything. I mean, even the term's got Catholic connotations, right? The Mass is the name for the Catholic understanding of what we just did this morning at the Lord's table. Of course, in the Mass, you're re-crucifying Christ. You're receiving justifying grace through a re-crucified Messiah who has literally become bread and wine. I don't think we mean that either. Um, so yeah, you can, you can press that back. And I know Christians who, for conscience, don't celebrate Christmas. That's cool too, you know? I mean, Paul says in Romans 14, one person honors one day to the Lord, one person doesn't. That's great. Um, there's no command to do that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on the pagan origins of things. Don't let that totally freak you out. What matters is what the associations are now, I think. You know what I mean? Because we don't want to do things that look evil. We, we want to do, according to Romans 12, if we can, as much as it depends on us, do what's honorable in the sight of all men. So, um, yeah, any, any questions on that? Any, any thoughts on that topic? That's my, that's my answer to those types of things. Um, Okay. Yeah, but but yeah, yes, Dan. Mm-hmm. They went back to their fields. Yeah, they they left they left their flock for a bit and they came back. No, thank you. Yeah, they went. They returned. Uh, it, again, it's interesting. We focus on them worshiping. It, I think it's a fair enough implication. What's only reported is they made haste to went and they told everybody and they went back. And that's really the three things a shepherd are said to do. They made haste and went 
They shared the testimony, they evangelized, they shared the good news, and they went back. And we can imply homage, worship, adoration, but Luke doesn't state it. Um, so, yeah. Anything else? Yes, Linda. Yes. That would make sense. Yeah. What's, what's, yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> yeah, we don't know, we don't, yeah, no, let's, let's talk about some other things. No, fair enough. If we're talking about dispelling or, not, or questioning other Christmas, Chris, Christmas, Christmas traditions, um, it is actually unlikely that a pregnant woman and a young carpenter would travel 90 miles alone. Almost certainly, there'd be large groups moving um, for safety, for robbers. Everyone else in their household would also have to go. So it's far, far more likely that Joseph and Mary and other families going to Bethlehem grouped together and traveled. It just makes sense. Um, it's also no statement that they were alone when she gave birth, that they're all by themselves. There might have been other people who had to sleep in the... I mean, unless they're just the last two people and there just wasn't exactly enough room, there's probably other people in this place too. Um, so yeah, we, all those, they're by themselves and they're traveling by themselves, probably not very likely. Probably not very likely at all. It certainly wouldn't be very safe. Um, so... I mean, robbers, imagine you're robbers and you're, you know everyone has to travel and here comes a pregnant woman and her husband. I mean, that's just easy pickings. They might have, but unlikely as far as, I'm, certainly the text doesn't say they made a trip by themselves. Um, no, fair enough observation. Fair enough observation. Anything else? Are there any other Christmas myths we can get rid of? Yes, Katie. Yes. Well, they told everything that had been told to them, which must include he's the Savior, he's the King, he's the, he's the Lord. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, it certainly doesn't have much of an effect because turn, turn to Luke 4. It grabs people's attention, but it doesn't stick with him. For whatever reason, he doesn't grow up as, oh, that's the Messiah kid. Um, for, no, for whatever reason, it doesn't. Um, because in Luke 4, when Jesus sort of makes his public appearance after his... Because in Jesus' life, here's what happens. He's born. We don't really know much about him. Luke gives us the only insight into his childhood. Um, and then he is tempt, he's baptized, he's tempted, and then he begins his ministry, ministry. And so in Luke 4, Jesus is tempted. And immediately after the temptation, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood, there, stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unraveled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him, and he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a pretty bold claim. Hey, I mean, it's this dramatic. He stands up, he reads it, he rolls it up, he sits down. This is pause. 
hey, what I just read, um, I'm fulfilling it today. It's bold. It's audacious. Um, and, uh, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? They didn't say, isn't this the one the angels? So for whatever, the word gets out, but in the next 30 years, the word gets lost somehow, or at least the people in this synagogue in Nazareth aren't remembering that because they're kind of, hey, this is Joseph's son. Yes. Right. Fair enough. Astute observation, yeah. My, my, my wife pointed out that as notable as the angels appearing was, the slaughter of the children that happened two or three years later um, would probably have overshadowed it. And so this is not the same place where the news spread. And, and, and that's also, I think, part of God's timing you're saying, too. He, he's born in Bethlehem, and he stays there a few years, but then he goes down to Egypt, then he goes up to Nazareth. And so the people who were present for his birth are not necessarily... You understand, in Jesus' day, most people, you, you were born and you died roughly within 10 or 15 miles of where you were born or died. You didn't, you didn't have these big... What? I said it funny. Okay. Yeah, 30 years is a long time. They can forget a lot in a week. So, I mean, so can we, but yeah. Yeah. Any, any, other, any other questions? No, that, that's an, another good observation, how God's lining things up and, um, and highlighting and, and getting Jesus in the right time in the right place. The world has shrunk now. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, imagine walking to Ames and back. That's about 90 miles from here. From this church, you're just going to walk to Ames. That'd be about 45 miles. Walk back. That'd be, that'd be a 90-mile trip. Yeah. yeah. Maybe ride a bicycle, like equate to a donkey or something. I mean, okay. No? Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Okay, 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 okay. It's apparently for the tape, it's not like riding a bike. Okay, um, fair enough. Anything else before we go to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Any other thoughts from Luke? Christmas thoughts? Um, I got one other, I will add one other thought. Um, I think it's important, as, 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 as neat as it is, we've, one of the things I get convicted about and I'm just thinking about this because it's a communion Sunday, is the Lord only instituted two rites of observance for us, right? What are they? Baptism? Lord's table? Communion. And it's good that we do it. I sometimes get convicted by what priority and how much more the ones we made up we give attention to, like Easter and Christmas. So it's cool. Easter and Christmas, I think, are cool. I just am constantly... Well, I was just convicted this morning of, given how much I get excited in the Christian spirit, how seriously, how prepared do I take the institution the Lord gave? So the Lord's like, here's two things I want you to observe. And we're like, and here's two other things we're going to make up to observe. And that's cool. But it, it is convicting that the ones we made up generally dwarf the ones he gave us. We make up parties. We make up parties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Love feast. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, was a feast. it was much closer to the 
Yeah. There was the potential of people getting drunk. So they probably weren't using grape juice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Until he comes. The marriage feast of the Lamb, yeah. Well, no, and the other thing Daniel read this morning, there's a whole lot to communion that we, I think, can forget, and it's challenging. Okay, we'll talk about communion for a minute. Why not? Um, one of the things that's challenging about taking the communion the way we do, and this is a sign, it's a symbol. I, I don't think we're wrong or sinning for altering it, but the further you move a sign from what it's supposed to look like, the harder it is to get there, right? So, I mean, people ask you those questions. If you were on a desert island and all you had was Kool-Aid and Doritos, would you still do... You might try. It's a lot harder to see the Lord's body and blood in Kool-Aid and Doritos, obviously, than it is, um, than it is with bread and with a cup. But go to 1 Corinthians... Go to 1 Corinthians um, 10. Um, if I could snap my fingers and reverse engineer, and don't misunderstand me. This is not something we're going to start doing next week. I don't know if we'll ever do it. But if I, if I had my druthers, there's a, there's a good word, druthers. Um, what? If I had my way, my preference, would I... If someone just said, hey, Jeremy, how would you recommend doing communion? Okay. I want you to notice part of the, part of the symbolism that is lost or difficult for us to see um, with the way we do communion. 1 Corinthians 10, um, verse 16. The what? The cup. Don't you mean the cups? No, it's the cup. Of blessing that we bless, is it not? And the word for participation is the Greek koinonia, a fellowship. Is it not a participation or fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. No, we got hundreds. Um, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Part of the imagery of communion is meant to be our unity and our oneness. And it's really hard to see that when we start with individual serving cups and bread. It might take 10 or 15 minutes more, but if we, like, I don't know. I'm not, again, we're not saying we're going to do this. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, if I had my druthers, we'd either drink from one cup, or if that was too gross, we'd see the individual cups poured from one common source. So the picture of all of us coming from one, and I mean, it would probably take 10 minutes long. We have the elders or something pour the cups in front of everyone from one common vat. But then that imagery of we who are many are one, we who are many drink from one cup, eat from one bread, that imagery would be present. As it is, I just got to remind myself of it. It's just harder to see it when the sign doesn't look like it. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. 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 And again, I'm not like I said. To be clear, I'm not saying I think we're in sin because we've changed it. I'm saying there's aspects that the the sign is supposed to symbolize and point to things, and there are parts of what it points to that are much much harder to see. And so we need to, with faith, remind ourselves of those things because one of the things we're declaring when we take communion is our unity. Is our unity. Um, so yeah. 
You spray it down. Yeah. 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 There you go. There you go. Okay. 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 Any any other um, any other thoughts or or complaints? Can we at least throw a party? I think okay. You also get the impression though. You also get the impression that the early church met other hold, order 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 of the court. You also get the impression that the early church met daily. Um, house by house, day by day, and that they're pretty much celebrating the Lord's table nearly every day, and it was around meals. They're having meal fellowship. But you also get the idea that they're gathering for much longer periods of time. So again, if, if we were to snap our fingers and try to recreate the first century, we'd probably be eating lunch together every Sunday. We'd probably be gathering most days of the week, um, and part of the meal, we'd be celebrating the Lord's table. If you wanted to re- reverse engineer and restructure everything... We ain't bringing your dogs. Oh, oh! No, Lee, Lee. I'm not. I'm not Lee. I'm not saying this is what we need to do. I'm just saying, if you want to put it in the context of what they were doing, um, that's that's what they were doing. Yep. Yeah, you could as yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so if you think our services are long, <laughs> no, no. And, and and when I was in seminary, the Korean church guys, some of the seminary students, they met every day, every day. The Anglican church, when it was first put in installed, every day, um, there was morning prayer twice a day, actually morning prayer and evening prayer. So, anywho. Those are some of the traditions we come out of. So I do think there's freedom. I think we're, I think, I'm not saying I think we're wrong for what we do. It's just um, it, it's hard to always remember what it is we're doing. Um, anyway. Yes. I don't know, there's, okay, do you guys know the difference between the word translate and transliterate? To transliterate, to translate is to say what something means in another language. To transliterate is simply to bring it across without translating it. So if you've ever had hors d'oeuvres, that is a transliterated word from French, right? It doesn't translate the word, it just brings it on across and you find some English letters to spell it with. I don't know why the translators chose certain words to transliterate and certain words to translate. Um, but Christ is one of those words. It's simply a transliteration of Christos. Um, so probably because... Also a translation of Messiah. No, no, no that's actually a translation. Christos is a translation of Messiah. So the Greek... Messiah is a transliteration of Messiah. All of that just means anointed. So I don't, I don't know why they choose. Just like baptize, um, 
I don't know why they didn't just translate it dipper. Oh, actually, I know why. They didn't want to pick a side in the whole baptism debate. So that's, no, no, seriously. I, I, five bucks says that's, that's a factor is we aren't going to pick a, if you translate it as dipper dunk, you kind of, kind of makes it harder to argue sprinkling, you know? Dipper dunk. Um, so I, I don't know, I don't, and there's a fair number of words like that that we get. Um, yes, Serena. Probably. Well, and the title, the, the New Testament, you, okay. So in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of people referred to as the Lord's anointed. Saul is called the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's Messiah. David is the Lord's Messiah. Cyrus is the Lord's Messiah. Okay? All sorts of people. The concept of anointed, because remember, the Holy Spirit did not come upon every individual. So the Holy Spirit would come upon people for service. They were the Lord's anointed. Right? You with me? Okay. Then, all of a sudden, the New Testament starts speaking about the anointed. And no longer is it just this notion of, oh, there's all sorts of anointeds. Whereas in the Old Testament, this guy's the anointed, and this guy's the anointed, and David says, I would not raise up my hand against the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't strike down Saul. All of that. Yeah, well, the, the oil was a picture of that. So in David, no, no, but he calls him my anointed, my shepherd. Um, well, it's again, the symbol is meant to picture the reality. So David is anointed king to indicate the Holy Spirit coming upon him to equip him for service. It's the sign, and I guess that would support dripping, you know. Um, but they don't call it baptized, they call it anoint. Um, anyway, yes? Um, I'd say that such people should probably study more Greek. <laughs> no, no, no. That, the, 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 the Greeks' use of article is, is radically different than ours. They use the article in place. The word article is the word for the in English. So you can have something as articular, the bottle, versus a bottle. Right, and we, A is the indefinite article, the is the definite article. Greek's totally different in its usage. So they'll put things like the Jesus went to Nazareth. Right. And other places where you'd expect the the to be there, they don't. So it's one of the places actually where it doesn't line up. So if someone said, oh, it's like English, no, it's not like English. Um, and that'd be my short answer, sorry. But back, let me just finish the thing with the transliteration and all that stuff, is I think probably though, that it becomes clear that in the New Testament, Christ, Jesus is the final, the decisive, the Christ, and starts taking on the notion of a title. And that's probably why it's stuck and why they didn't translate it. Just like deacon means one who serves, but eventually it becomes an office of service. Um, it's the same thing. So I'm guessing that the, the notion of Christos, the Christ, God has made him both Savior and Christ. Um, the name of Jesus in an this, this Christ emphasis that they just grabbed onto it and held onto it. I mean, Jesus isn't remotely close to how they would have pronounced his name. Greek would be Iesus, which is really just a Greek transliteration of Joshua, which would more likely be called Yeshua. So it's not like Mary and Joseph actually said Jesus. They would have called him something close to Yeshua, and then they translated that into Greek as Jesus. Iesus is how the Greek would be pronounced. So, I'm Dan, I'm sure you've heard classic music where it's Iesus. You know, anyway, that's how they'd say it. So, all these things are coming across. Wow. Okay, that was that was almost really bad. Stay put. Okay. Um, so. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somehow all the Y's in Hebrew became J's. So Yahweh becomes Jehovah, Yeshua becomes Joshua. Yeah, it comes to the Germanic languages, yeah, that's how. Um, so all of the J names, like Jeremiah, would probably be Jeremiah. Um, uh, no, Yennefer. The Book of Yob. Afrikaan, there you go. There you go. Okay, any other translation, transliteration questions? Okay, baptism of the Holy Spirit, here we go. Okay. Now, I have here, um, and I'll pick up with this. Let me, let me review the, where we've gone, the ground we've supposedly covered, what I've tried to argue thus far. If I can get my arms out of, there we go. Okay. Um, I have argued, the ba- okay, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act by which Jesus baptizes, dips, immerses a believer with or by the Holy Spirit into his body, the church. Everyone with me on that definition? Um, when does this happen? I have argued it happens at conversion. Okay? And, we'll re- and, and my basis for that, go to 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. So Paul is assuming every believer at Corinth is baptized by the Holy Spirit, or into the Holy Spirit, or with the Holy Spirit, um, and that's how we were united with the body of Christ. To put it simply, if you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're not part of the body of Christ. If you're not part of the body of Christ, you're lost. Um, now, where we ended last week is by saying, now this view, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is, is commensurate with, is simultaneous with conversion, regeneration, faith, justification, all those things that occur at salvation. Um, there are brothers and sisters that we love, brothers and sisters that we um, agree on a lot of things with who would disagree with us. And there are a couple passages in Acts that would seem to give credence to the notion that doesn't this happen sometime after salvation? I don't, I don't want to... You guys know what a straw man is? Straw man is when you make a weak version of your opponent's argument and then you knock it down and see how stupid they're... So I, I brought out this not in any way to ridicule the assemblies of God, but to let them speak in their own words. And... Um, I picked them again because they are the most like-minded with us. These are guys that we're going to be seeing in heaven. These are guys who we love, we could do ministry with, so that the closest like us who yet disagree on this point. That's why I've picked them, okay? And I got their statement so they can read their own words. But here is their view of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The, the critical passage is this. The baptism in the Holy Spirit was the normal experience of all believers in the early church. Okay, I'm with them so far. With the experience comes a provision of power for victorious Christian living and productive service. I'm with them so far. It also provides believer with specific spiritual gifts for more effective ministry. Amen. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from and follows the new birth experience. I'm not so sure. 
Actually, I, I disagree. Um, with this baptism comes such experiences as an overflowing fullness of the Spirit, a deepened reverence for God. I'm, I'm with them there. And then their second point, these are their distinctives. These are 16 cardinal doctrines. That's number seven. Number eight, the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the initial physical sign of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them audible expression. This form of speaking in tongues is basically the same as the gift of tongues. The difference is the purpose and use. So basically, they recognize that not everybody, um, they, they don't argue that every Christian has the gift of speaking in tongues, but they do believe that every Christian baptized by the Holy Spirit will at least initially evidence that baptism by speaking in tongues. So the key two distinctives that we would disagree on is the timing and the evidence. Okay, you with me? So does it happen at salvation? And is it the case that speaking in tongues is the always and everywhere evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And by the way, anyone, anyone have friends, know people who, who believe this? Is this something you guys have encountered? This is, this is pretty mainstream charismatic. Um, it's, it's dead central in the... Um, in the um, Assemblies of God. Now, notice how they're not saying we're not saved. It's subsequent to salvation. So in their view, at least the Assemblies of God view, we're saved. They're going to see us in heaven. They're not saying we're not Christians. They're just saying we haven't, we haven't had this deeper second experience. It does necessarily create a two-tier system. There's a That's what it sounds like, yeah. Or the, and some of them will quibble there, like you can have the Spirit, but you're not filled with the Spirit, perhaps, or something. Um, but, but the point is, they, they're, they're not saying we're not Christians. They're not saying we're not going to heaven. They are just saying we haven't had this subsequent second experience. Okay? Everyone, everyone any questions on what they're saying? <clears throat> what? Uh, that's an implication. They wouldn't say that. Let's be fair to them. They're not saying that. It's there's certainly you get this two-tier system. That's unescapable. Yes. They're saying they're saying that salvation is this two-step process. First, you get saved, and then sometime after you're and it's saved, you're forgiven, you're going to heaven, you're a child of God. Sometime later. You have a second experience where you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. Everyone will know because you'll speak in tongues. And now you have, and here's their words, what the significance of this baptism is, is um, power for victorious Christian living. So you will now have, before you didn't have power for victorious Christian living, now you do. Um, it provides you with a spiritual, you didn't have a spiritual gift beforehand, now you do. Um, it also, uh, an overflowing fullness of the Spirit, a deeper reverence for God, and an intensified commitment to God and dedication to His work. Well, they certainly, would, they certainly would want everybody and facilitate everybody to have that. They would say every believer can and should have that, and if you don't, meet with us, we'll help you do that. Yes. Yes. It's something to pursue, and it's attainable for everybody. It's, it's, it ought to be pursued, and it will be attainable for everybody. Um, what? I don't know. I don't know. 
Elsa and Linda both have come out of churches that, that taught these types of things. So if you want to know further, you can talk with them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you guys a brief story. Um, shortly after I got saved, shortly after the Lord um, um, converted me, um, I was checking out churches in town. I was pretty much going to every church that had a service any day of the week. And there was this uh, group of people downtown Laconia, New Hampshire. God bless them, the Christ Life Center. And these are some people, it's dear brothers and sisters who love the Lord. I will credit them up front by saying, I have never seen anyone in my hometown in New Hampshire love the lost, love the poor, love the unlovely like these people did. They had a bookstore and up above it, they had apartments, people were living there. I mean, there's a guy who had been a former um, male prostitute in Boston that had been converted there. He was, I mean, these people were loving the unlovely. And so when I showed up there, I was sort of expecting God's truth to be ridiculous in the sense of, I remember praying when, before I was like, okay, God, if this is where you're at, this is what you're doing, they were charismatic church. Not a health, wealth, prosperity charismatic church, but these same people tried to walk on water a couple months later. Um, and, um, no, it was not winter. And, and, um, and but, I lo- but, but seriously, I love these guys. When I go back, I still visit with people I met from there. Good, good folk. But um, I remember beforehand saying, Lord, if this is where you're at, no matter how foolish this looks, no matter how um, strange it looks, I, I want to, I want, I don't, you know, I just, this is what you're doing. And so I remember meeting with one of them afterwards, and they had, a, like you said, a small little meeting. They had me assume the position of surrender is what they called it. Sort of put your hands up. I sort of stood there, people praying. And I remember thinking, again, this is really like, Lord, I don't want to resist this, but, there's no, but I also told myself, there's no way I'm just going to give into suggestion and just, you know, people push pressure on you. I'm just going to collapse or something. I'm like, Lord, I'm pretty confident your spirit can knock me out if you want to do that, but I'm not just going to let somebody, you know, sort of... So I'm trying not to resist. It's this weird. You're trying not to resist, but you're trying not to be an idiot, you know? And so I'm, they're praying over me and everything. And um, nothing. And so... After about five or ten minutes of this, and the hands on my shoulders got a little heavier, <laughs> one of them tells me I need to straighten my knees. Now, I remember from military school, you lock your knees, what happens? You pass out. So, I was, no, I'm not going to lock my knees, sorry. Whether it's the position of surrender or not, nope, not locking the knees. And we stood there for, what, 15, 20 minutes, and finally they just said, huh, we'll just keep praying for you. I said, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, um, you know, that was my experience with that. But... Um, yeah, something like that would, would happen. Um, but uh, The emotional pressure of succumbing to that mm. is in, would be enormous. Thankfully, I'm a very stubborn person, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see why it's... Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you're, you're feeling the pressure of people. They're, they're, they're looking at their watches, you know. They're yeah, at, yeah. No, yeah, 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 yeah. They're absolutely sincere. Yeah, Elsa. We'll get to we're getting we're gonna get to the gift of tongues. We're not on the gift of tongues yet. We'll get there, Wanda. 
Um, certainly, in any denomination, you run the risk of people who aren't trusting the gospel. But if people are believing what this document is saying, are Christians and saved? This document articulates the gospel clearly and accurately. Um, so, certainly, and what happens, like in any group, there are excesses, and every group's susceptible to their own dangers. The charismatics are far more susceptible to prosperity teaching than, say, non-charismatics. And so, certainly, there are plenty of prosperity, and I think where you get the prosperity gospel, you're starting to lose the real gospel, and you're, it's about money, and it's about wealth, and it's about health. Um, and I, I certainly abominate that. But just because you're charismatic doesn't mean you're prosperity gospel. If you're prosperity gospel, you're almost certainly some type of charismatic. Likewise, there are dangers we can fall into as well. We can, you know, formalism, legalism, the high church can even, everybody's got their dangers, their theological errors they're, they're, they're susceptible to. We don't tend, now we can be susceptible to prosperity light. What that looks like is if you're a faithful Christian, you'll have a nice middle class Christian life without any real trials or tribulations. There's plenty, I know plenty of people who, and you, you know that they believe that because the first time the cancer comes or the, the loss of the job comes or the death in the family comes, there's this sense of, hey, I've been a good kid. What happened? I've seen, yeah, no, no, we can, we can, we can succumb to the prosperity gospel light. Well, let, let, let's bring this home even closer. What are 95% of our prayer requests related to week after week? Sickness. You're not hearing people pray, and I'm not asking for volunteers, but you're not hearing, the, the things, now, it's part of it is what are we comfortable saying in front of a group of people you don't know terribly well. But part of it also indicates what we're looking at, you know? So, I mean, we gotta be careful. I think, I think we need to keep an eye on us falling into the, the gospel of the American dream. You can have a nice white picket fence and, you know, be a good Christian, have a nice fulfilled life, and go to heaven when you die. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we don't generally put those on bumper stickers, do we? Um, Elsa. No. Well, let me put it another way, for the tape. What you're going to find is, and you're quite right, if you look at the verse references in this document, the majority of the argumentation for this sort of charismatic view, and this, this view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the standard charismatic view, um, is going to be argued almost exclusively from Acts, the book of Acts. And, um, and the point is, Acts, what type of literature is Acts? History. So the inerrancy of scripture tells us inherently that what is recorded took place, but what is, took, what is recorded doesn't guarantee that that's normative. It's not prescriptive, it is descriptive. Now there's, there's your little phrase. History is, pre, is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. And everyone who's had a kid is thankful that God isn't calling them to go take him up to a mountain. That The book of Genesis <laughs> describes what Abraham did, it does not prescribe what Abraham did. Whereas the, the epistles 
um, are commands. They're imperatives. They, 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 Paul is speaking, Peter is are speaking for God and telling the church what to do. Acts is not doing that. And the other point is Acts is a transition. That was, that was the big point. Remember, I use, oh man, we just got here and we got five minutes. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to deal with the, we use the example of the, uh, an Acts of the Samaritans. Let's go there. This is probably the best argument for, this is the strongest argument for the two, the two sequence, um, the two, it's not, it's not Acts 8, it's Acts 6, right? Where is it, 5? What am I doing? What's, yeah, Simon the Sorcerer, 8, it is 8, okay. I see Paul, Saul ravages the church up top, I'm like, okay, it can't be right. Okay, so here is the, the, Certainly we acknowledge, at least in one instance, there was a delay between people being, being baptized, hearing the gospel, believing, and receiving the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be the primary place they're going to argue from. So let's, let's just uh, read the key point. Um, verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, so this isn't an issue of false conversion, this isn't an issue of, of professing only. Um, this, these people believed, it said they believed, they received the word. Um, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, here's another text that says you don't receive the Spirit necessarily when you get baptized. Here's another instance where baptism, water baptism, and spirit baptism are not simultaneous events. Um, and so you look at this and you say, and so then what happens? Um, now when Simon, okay, let me skip past Simon. Now when Simon saw, okay, when they laid, it's verse 17, sorry. And then they laid hands on them and they received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through laying on the apostles' hands, he offered the money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God of money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God, repent therefore of your wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me and they returned to Jerusalem. By the way, I don't see anything here that says that they were speaking in tongues. Just, just a side note. Um, by the way, let me just deal with that real fast. We know that receiving the Holy Spirit does not always accompany by speaking in tongues because what happened when Jesus received the Holy Spirit? Did he begin speaking in no? So there's at least one person who received, was baptized by the Holy Spirit and did not speak in tongues, and that'd be Jesus. So whether or not it happens a lot or frequently, I think we can break the it always happens and say no. I'm going, to push, I'm going to push for more than that, but that's at least a crack in the door, okay? So, the analogy I used last week, though, is what's going on in the book of Acts is this. We are seeing people, like you said, transition from one covenant to the other. To use a really, really uh, gross analogy, I just mean, it's, 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 you're comparing something wonderful and glorious to something common. It's kind of like upgrading internet speed, going from dial-up to high-speed modems. The, the, 
I, I feel bad even saying the benefits package. The benefits under the old covenant included peace with God, eternal life, but there was no gift of the Holy Spirit. And there was no adoption of sonship. You, you can read through the Psalms, David does not call God dad. He does not approach him as Abba, Father. There are benefits and privileges that we receive under the new covenant that were absolutely um, unprecedented in Israel's history. And so what you're seeing in Acts in many cases, not this, admittedly, not this case, but in many cases are people who are already forgiven under the old covenant, transitioning to the benefit. In Acts 2, the apostles are not getting saved. Fair enough? Peter, in preaching the gospel, has not just gotten saved three minutes earlier. Rather, a few minutes earlier, Peter received the benefits of the new covenant. So in Acts 2, the first time the Holy Spirit falls upon people, you're not witnessing a salvation event. You're witnessing a new covenant event. And then, when this three or 4,000 people believe, there's no mention of them speaking in tongues. The tongues are a sign given to Peter and the apostles who are already justified in the upper room, on the rooftop, to grab a crowd so that Peter can preach in Greek or in Hebrew or one language, and then thousands of people get converted and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the, ne- the next piece of this. We've got three minutes. Okay. So my analogy of the upgrade of the internet is this. Imagine Martinsdale is upgrading with Windstream from dial-up to high speed, and you're watching from the sidelines you'll see a bunch of people who have dial-up, one by one, somebody comes to their door, and then they're going to get modems, and they're going to get these wireless modems, and they're going to at a high speed. And you would conclude, watching from the sidelines, ah, that's how one gets internet. First you get dial-up, and then at some later date, a technician comes over, and you get high speed. No. Windstream is now only doing high-speed internet. They're not, they're not doing dial-up anymore. You, but you've got to transition the people who were on dial-up up to high-speed. And the book of Acts shows that. We, we see that in, um, in 19. Remember, jump over to 19. Acts 19. The disciples of John the Baptist, who Paul comes across at Ephesus. Um, and he, he re-baptizes them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. It happened while Apollos and Cor- it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? He said, into John's baptism. Now John, as we're going to see in January, comes preaching the gospel. The text says what he preaches is gospel. He's a legitimate prophet of God, and people who responded in repentance and faith to John's message are justified. Right? With me? Okay. So these people, I would assume, if they're sincere disciples of John the Baptist, are forgiven. They're justified. They're right with God. They're just not recipients of new covenant blessings because they have not believed upon the Messiah of the new covenant. Let me pause. That's another distinction. One of the the differences, there's this continuity and discontinuity in the old and new covenant. What's continuous, what does not change, is salvation has always been by faith. No one was ever justified by what they did. Okay? That that is continuous. But the content of what you had to have faith in does not appear to be continuous. Because you go to Hebrews 11, and it said, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. 
It's different things. By faith, Abraham left the land that he was in. By faith, Moses chose to identify the people of Israel, not the people of Egypt. By faith, Joseph said, bury my bones in Canaan. Now, they're all believing promises of God. But it's, I don't believe that Abraham, when he believed God and it was counted as righteousness, had a fully formed understanding. God will one day send him a sign. I'm putting my trust in him because he will bear my sins somehow. No, God promised something. Abraham believed God counted it as righteousness. That, that's, that's what it looks like to me. And I've heard people try to argue, no, they were trusting the coming Messiah. No, as scripture gets written more and more, they start to do that. But I think with Abraham as our first example, God said, hey, I'll be your God. Leave your people, follow me, and I'll bless you. And Abraham believed, and God said, that's what I'm looking for, faith. You're right with me. I don't think Abraham had a fully developed messiology at, at, by Genesis 12. So one of the discontinuities under the Old Covenant is what did you have to believe? Now you had to believe what God said and you had to respond in faith, but I think under the Old Covenant it was a little broader. As opposed to in the New Covenant, there is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. You, you, in the New Covenant, you can't just, you know, read part of Genesis and get saved. You've got to hear the message of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also taught to you, that Christ Jesus was, was, um, died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and afterwards he appeared, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for sins according to the scripture. That's the gospel message, and it, you've got to believe that message. Does that, does that distinction make sense? You got you with me? Okay. So these disciples of John the Baptist, and we're just out of time, so I'll, I'll wrap up here. Um, he said, no, but I think they're justified. We're baptized in the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come. So John the Baptist's gospel message is he's almost here. And if you believed that, and it was a prophet, that he was a prophet from God, and you believed John's message, you were justified. John's message was he's coming, he's here. Repent and be baptized. And those people who did, I believe, are, are forgiven and justified. So here's people who are already forgiven, and then they hear the message of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, they get baptized again, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, that's... that's yep. That yep. Right. And that was the other big point from last week, and we'll close on this. Jesus, at the beginning of Acts 1, says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and all the world. And where do we see the first evidence of tongues? Jerusalem. Where do we see the next evidence? Samaria. When's the next evidence? The Gentiles and all the world. And so it becomes this big mark post of the gospel going out and going out and going out to everybody. Anyway, we're going to close there. Um, we'll pick this up next week. God bless.